Uh, my favorite gardening magazine arrived in the mail this week. That is always a good thing. It is always a delightful thing. It was timely, and it was a tantalizing reminder to me that indeed spring will come. And as I looked through it, one of the articles in the magazine was written by a professional designer of gardens, and he was providing various uh, keys to a beautiful garden. How do, you, how do you develop a garden? What are some essential components of it? And some of the things that he mentioned in the article, and, and he would have these titles and then give a little explanation of them, were the necessity, for example, of having a focal point or several points in the garden that are places where you're trying to draw your attention, of having an entry point to the garden, a place where you realize, okay, at this point I have come in to the garden, of establishing sight lines in the garden so that you can see in certain directions and your eyes will naturally take you down a particular path of the importance of repetition of not just having a million different types of plants in the garden, but of repeating certain themes so that your eyes can take in and can process what is taking place. And then the final thing that he mentioned was the necessity of mystery in a garden, that certain things in a garden have to be hidden so that your mind and your eye wants to walk along a path, having a sight line, and then know that there's something just beyond sight, something mysterious, something that you can't see that will draw you in. Our passage today uh, seems to me like a well-designed garden and includes many of these exact same elements. The entryway into the passage is what we considered last week when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. We also considered Jesus crossing over the sea to join the disciples. But in particular, the feeding of the 5,000 is the entryway into this idea. And the sight lines that are established throughout this passage and the repetition that is in the passage, and you, you heard the repetition. That's why I said if you don't look at this passage carefully, it's all going to same, seem like the same thing to you. But the repetition and the sight lines that are there lead us to the focal point, which of course in the passage is Jesus himself presenting himself by saying, I am the bread of life. Here's the focal point. I am the bread of life. But just as soon as you think you've got it set, you've, you, you've got your sight line established, you've got your focal point, you're going to it, and you've got Jesus as the bread of life, then there's something mysterious in this passage because we come to the the last section of the passage that I just read for us, and you get that very graphic language about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. And so it's kind of a mysterious turn right when you think you've got it that says, okay, where, where did we just end up and how did we get to this place? What is being hidden from us and then revealed to us? Maybe you can think of it like this. It is almost as if in a garden, or if you prefer, from last week, in the midst of the wilderness, a tree of life has been planted. And now what comes out in this passage is not don't eat, 
not restriction from that tree of life, but instead a call, you got to eat from the tree. You now have to eat from this tree because I'm the bread of life and you've got to take of it. There are endless ways to approach this inexhaustibly rich passage that is set before us today. But what I'm going to try to do is follow the flow of this passage as it is presented to us. Uh, there are times when I'll have to consolidate, collate a few things together. But I want to try to follow how it's being structured here because I think for us is there the message in the, in the way that it is structured. So let me try and do that. And we're going to begin then by thinking about mundane pursuits. If you, if you like outlines and structuring through it. Think first here of mundane pursuits. I think it is interesting that in a very dense passage, theologically rich passage, John spends four verses from verse 22 to verse 25 describing for us the confusion that existed about the whereabouts of Jesus. Where did he go? How did he get there? When did he get there? There's confusion that exists about this, and John takes time to explain that to us. They want to know how did he get from here to there? Where did he go? And why did he go there? And they are described, the people are described in verse 24 as people who are seeking Jesus. Okay, so a couple of, a couple of verses of build up here, and then the people are described as seeking Jesus. Now, when we hear that, when we hear the phrase seeking Jesus, we might think to ourselves, well, that's a positive thing, right? We know enough of scripture to think if you're seeking Jesus, that that's probably a good thing. For example, in the promise of forgiveness uh, from Isaiah 55, we read this this morning, seek the Lord while he may be found, right? They seek him and when they find him, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Verse 6 of the call to worship, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So we hear that, seeking Jesus, and we think, well, this is probably a good thing to be seeking after Jesus. But when they find Jesus, Jesus rebukes their pursuit. They're seeking. Verse 26, what he says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus basically accuses them of a mundane pursuit. And here I'm using mundane in the idea of being of this world, not of spiritual things, but relating to the earth. They're seeking after things of the world when they're seeking for Jesus. So, for example, in verse 2 of chapter 6 still, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Or in verse 15, we considered this last week, of how they, they want to, Jesus perceives that the people want to make him king, an earthly king and here we see the desire that exists within them to fill their bellies all of these are mundane things they are things of the earth that they're seeking when they seek for Jesus in verse 34 they said to him sir 
give us this bread always. Now, you might say, well, this is really a good thing that they're saying. It's really a spiritual thing. I don't think it's a spiritual thing that they're saying at all. They are looking to have their bellies full. It can't help when you hear that phrase, sir, give us this bread always. It can't help but remind us of a few chapters back, and this now was probably two months ago when we looked at this, but of the woman at the well. When Jesus is talking to her about living water, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. They're thinking of the earth. They're thinking of mundane things and mundane pursuits. These people are hearing. They're, they're hearing what Jesus is saying, but they are not hearing. These people are seeing. They're seeing the things that he is doing. They're seeing the fact that he's healing the sick. They're seeing the fact that he has provided food for 5,000, for 20,000 people. They are seeing the things that he is doing, but they're not seeing what is being signified. They can see the sign, but they're missing what is being signified by the sign itself. To put it back in the language where I started, these people are seeking, but they are not seeking. Seeking, but not seeking. They're consumed by the things of this world. Their energy, their minds, their activities, their plans, their pursuits are all of the day-to-day -day things that take up so much of the mental space that we have, the thought processes that go through our mind. What's for dinner? What's for breakfast? What's for lunch? How do I get the food that I need? How do I get everything else done that I need to get done in my day? They're focused on providing for themselves. And if I can secure food that's going to last a long time, maybe forever, I can check that off my list. I can focus on something else if I can get food forever. And it's all vanity. It's all vanity. For in the end, no matter how richly or how wholesomely or how sparingly we eat, I hate to be dire with this and direct. No matter how well you do all of that, no matter how well you cook, in the end, we all die. You eat a lot, you eat a little, it doesn't make any difference. In the end, you die. And the proof is in the manna. The proof is not in the pudding. The proof is in the manna. Verse 49, Jesus says to them, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. You're looking for bread. Bread was rained down from heaven. It came directly down from heaven. They ate that bread, and you know what happened? They died. Doesn't matter. You can eat bread. You can eat the best bread all of your life. Homemade bread, delicious bread, you will die in the end. We're locked in a pattern and in a pursuit of that which perishes. That's what Jesus is saying. You are pursuing something which will perish, and you will perish with that thing as well. Jesus sees, and I, I, I thought of this verse as I was preparing this and thinking through it. 
Jesus sees the reality of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Jesus is identifying for them, for us, you're caught in a trap. You are caught in a snare. You are pursuing that which perishes. And yet Jesus speaks to them, to us, those who are trapped in the cycle of going after the next thing that we need, the next thing that is on the schedule for us. And Jesus speaks into that and says, do not work for the food that perishes. He speaks into it. Don't do that. Don't work for that which perishes. But what do those words mean? What do those words mean when you are caught in this deadly trap, when we are caught in this vicious cycle, in this spiral? How do you escape that? When you hear those words from Jesus, do not labor. Do not work for that which perishes. So let's move in thinking about that from the mundane pursuit then to a heavenly pursuit. From mundane pursuit to heavenly pursuit. So these people hear the rebuke from Jesus. And they at least understand the concept of the rebuke that was just given to them. They interpret Jesus, they're listening to Jesus, and they go, okay, you say that we're doing the wrong thing. You say to us, we're not doing the right thing. We're pursuing the wrong thing. We'll accept that for a minute, fair enough. We'll accept that we're not pursuing the wrong thing. And we'll follow then with this question. They then said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They're looking for thus a redirected pursuit change the thing that we're going after and we'll go that way. You know, maybe they think at the moment that, okay, what is, what is the work that we should be doing? You're saying we shouldn't be pursuing bread. Maybe what you're about to say is instead we should work at a food bank. We should be amongst those who are distributing bread to people. We should be generous. So that's what they're looking for. Give us another work. If, that's not, if we haven't done the right thing, tell us another direction. Jesus gives an answer that is, in fact, an odd answer to their question. And he says, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, that's an odd answer to them because they think of work the same way that you and I would think of work. And so Jesus here is borrowing their language all right, let's talk about, uh, if you want to, I'll use the word work. To say to them that what you need to do is to believe. And it's a use of their language because believing isn't actually a work and they would have perceived that this is a little bit confusing in terms of what he is saying. And the problem with what Jesus has said, this exhortation, fine, you want to do something, go ahead. This is the work that I've given you to do, believe. 
in him whom he has sent. The problem becomes apparent because they cannot do the one thing that Jesus has told them is necessary. That's what becomes immediately apparent in this text. They cannot do that simple thing. Jesus didn't give them a complicated thing to do. There wasn't a set of 20 instructions about this is what you need to do, this is how you need to do it, this is where you need to go. It was just one thing, believe, and they can't do it. Demonstrably, demonstrably they are confused and they are short-sighted. Verse 52, then the Jews disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Demonstrably, they're skeptical. They're skeptical, and they're basically throwing down the gauntlet and saying to him, listen, we're, we're looking for a sign here. We're looking for something that you're going to do. Ironically enough, they're looking for a sign, having just come from the feeding of the 5,000 and 20,000 uh, or so who were there. Remember, uh, since it's so parallel to this, the woman at the well, because I think these, these things parallel one another, the woman at the well, when Jesus begins talking to her about the living water, even better than the water that's coming out of this well, she says, listen, Jacob dug this well. Jacob dug this well. Are you saying that you're greater than our father Jacob? Well, here in this passage, we have essentially the same thing being said. What they're saying is, listen, Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. And the implied kind of throwdown question for them is, are you saying, with your talk of the eternal food and, and bread and things like that, are you saying you're greater than our father Moses? They're demonstrably skeptical. Demonstrably, they grumble and they doubt what is taking place here. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And so demonstrably true of them and true to all humanity is that left to ourselves, verse 36 is the reality, left to ourselves, Jesus has made comments to them, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. I've told you one thing is necessary. The only thing I've told you that is necessary is that you believe. Now sometimes he's speaking in the third person here, right? Believe in the one whom the Father has sent. Obviously referring, the one thing I've told you is that you need to believe and you do not believe. They cannot do the one work that is required of them. The jail is locked, the trap is set, the evil net that ensnared the fish, the cage that trapped the bird, the net that has engulfed us is set and there is no escape there is no way out of it I you are locked in and of ourselves in a body of death unable to do the one thing that would get us out believe and thus the heavenly pursuit is something other than us pursuing God it is other than that. That, 
would be, in fact, an exercise in futility. It would be like Psalm 24, which was our call to worship this morning. It would be like us deciding that we can go up on the mountain of the Lord, on the hill of the Lord, on our own. Go ahead, go up the hill of the Lord on your own. You know what happened to people who touched the hill of the Lord? Not even, not went up, touched the hill of the Lord, you died. Touched the hill of the Lord and you died. Except for Moses who was ordained and able to go up and the elders who were able to go up as well. Us pursuing God as an effort in futility and thus the heavenly pursuit that is encouraged in this passage, that is described in this passage, is the pursuit of the triune God seeking after us. So Jesus takes their futility, their kind of where'd you go, how'd you get here, how, how, we're seeking you, we found you. Jesus takes the futility of that, but he uses the picture of it and says, let me flip this around. Let me show you a successful pursuit. And the successful pursuit is the pursuit of the triune God. Indeed, Jesus said, a work needs to be done. A pursuit needs to take place. A finding needs to take place. But in reality, God needs to do it. Moses didn't do the work. Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. Who did the work? God did the work. God gives you the bread from heaven. God gives you more than the bread from heaven. God is giving you the true bread from heaven. God gave it then, and he always gives more than simply what fills our bellies. Now, let me collate at this point the thoughts here to express the work of this heavenly pursuit that goes on here by the triune God. What does God the Father do in this passage? What is the work of God the Father? Well, God the Father, he gives. He gives bread in the wilderness. He gives true bread. And verse 37 of the passage, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father gives to his Son a people. The Father sends. Throughout this passage is the idea, the, the reality of the fact that the Son was sent by the Father. The work that the Father does is he sends the Son. Verse 57, as the living Father has sent me. Believe in the one whom he has sent. What does the Father do? Verse 27, the Father sends, gives, the Father sends the one on whom the Father has set his seal. Verse 27, God the Father set his seal on the Son. On a particular one that has come, God has set his seal, God has authenticated that one as the one who comes from him. He gives, he sends, he sets his seal. Verse 44, God the Father draws. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God the Father draws people to the Son. And verse 45, God the Father teaches. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That is the work of the Father. He gives, he sends, he seals, he draws, he teaches. 
Jesus, God the Son, what does he do? He comes down. We confessed it in the Nicene Creed when we said it today, and it is the thing that rings throughout this passage of repetition. He comes down. He becomes incarnate flesh. Countless times in this passage it's described that way. He comes down. Secondly, he becomes bread. He in whom is all life, he through whom all life was created, comes down from heaven as bread, offering himself as life for the world through his body and blood. He comes down, he becomes bread, he gives himself as food for the life of the world. He satisfies true hunger. Verse 51, the phrase that I've now used twice and just uh, made the title of this sermon, he gives himself for the life of the world. Think of what he's saying there. Am I greater than Moses? You mean greater than the one who provided manna that perishes to a people who perished in the wilderness? Am I greater than Moses? Yes, because I am giving you myself for the life, and the eternal life that is, of the world. Not just of a people in the wilderness, not just of 5,000, not just of 20,000, not just of a nation, but for the life of the world. Yes, I am greater than Moses. The food and the blood, the flesh being offered up is of course pointing to the sacrifice that Jesus will make by which he will purchase our forgiveness, purchase our justification, our redemption. Jesus comes down, Jesus becomes bread, Jesus gives himself for food, Jesus does the will of his Father. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What is the will of the Father? Verse 39, that I should lose none, that I don't lose a person that God the Father has given to me. What do I do as part of the will of the Father? I give them eternal life. They will live forever. What is the will of the Father? Verse 40, that everyone who believes and looks on the Son of Man should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the work of God the Son. We looked at the work of God the Father. God the Holy Spirit, we're going to hold off till next week. The Spirit isn't yet mentioned in our text. It will be in the next section here. We'll hold off on the work of the Spirit till next week. This, then, is the heavenly pursuit. It is God's pursuit, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What Jesus is saying here is, listen, all of you are futile looking. You're stuck in a trap. You can't believe I've got to pursue you. Salvation is of the Lord. But that's not all there is to say in the passage. We must return, finally, to the idea of an imperishable pursuit. Because Jesus commands this. Do not work, verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. The call stands. There is a call that is given to the people who are stuck in the trap. Don't work for that which perishes. Do pursue. Do pursue 
that which is imperishable. Don't try to do some good works to make yourself acceptable to God. Don't spend all of your time grumbling. Don't go off and dispute with one another. Don't think that you can reason all this out and figure out everything that's going on here. Don't think that you're smarter than God. You have to be taught by God the Father. The call stands, and we are familiar with the call because it is in every chapter of John's Gospel. What do you have to do? What is it that we're being called to do? We have to believe in the one whom God has sent. We have to see him with the eyes of faith and believe. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Or to say it another way, we have to come to him who came down to us. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. Verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus cannot speak more strongly than he does in this passage of divine sovereignty, of sovereign grace, of God's decree of predestination without which no man will be saved. He can't say it any stronger than he does here. And he can't say any more clearly than he does here, believe, believe in me, come to me, and you will be saved. But there's one more thing in the passage, and it's hard and it's mysterious, and it's a glorious summons that comes at the end of this passage. Jesus says to us, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, it's possible that we could look at that section and we could understand this simply as an analogy, as figurative language, as a metaphorical way of saying the same thing that I just said, believe, come, and see. We just use it as one more example of that, of one more statement of that. That makes sense contextually, but I think there's more to it. I think that it's right at this point that in traveling through the garden, we've come to a bend in the path, and there's something that is slightly obscured. There is a treasure that is around the corner, and Jesus is describing that to us. Jesus has offered an answer to the problem of sin and of death. But that's not all that he's offered. Jesus has offered a new direction, a new pursuit, a cure to a disease of selfishness and self-preoccupation. But that's not all that he has offered. Jesus, in this passage, is offering to us nothing less than himself. He's offering to us a way to have our guilty verdict overturned and thus be justified by his blood. 
and is offering to us communion with himself. Something mystical, something sweet, something is here that is unspeakably wonderful. Whoever feeds, verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus is not offering us a bare way to get out of the trap. He's not simply saying to us, listen, here's the key. Believing in me will allow you to unlock the door and have eternal life. That's good. But what Jesus is offering to us here is intimacy, is fellowship, is communion with him and with his father and with the spirit. He's the bread of life. He is the living one. And to partake of him is to partake of life itself. John Murray puts it this way. The life of faith is the life of love. And the life of love is the life of fellowship or mystic communion with him who ever lives to make intercession for his people and who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It is fellowship with him who has an inexhaustible reservoir of sympathy with his people's temptations, afflictions, infirmities, because he was tempted in all points like as they are yet without sin. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold, metallic assent. That's what Jesus is turning to here. It's not just... It's not just that I want you to believe because the correct thing to do is believe. And believe will get you from here to there. It can't be just cold metallic ascent. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion because communion with God is the crown and apex of true religion. Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Having thus been pursued, having thus been found by our Lord, may it be for us then a delightful pursuit and a sweet satisfaction pursue and to delight in communion with him and in union with Christ which he has offered to us as the one who is the bread of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have offered to us here life and you are the bread of life. Help us not to pursue life on our own terms for we will surely seek after the things that perish, but help us to pursue that which has been given to us, namely life in you, namely fellowship with you. Thank you, triune God, for the work that you have done on our behalf. Help us to delight in your communion. Help us to delight in union with you. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.